Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Soho Radio Podcast, showcasing some of the best broadcasts from our online radio station right from the heart of Soho, London. Across our music and culture channels, we have a wide range of shows covering every genre, along with chat shows, discussions and special broadcasts. Here is just one of our recent shows. To catch the full show, head to our Mixcloud page or listen live at SohoRadioLondon.com. The song we just uh, listened to is called Prada by Arca, a boundary-breaking musician, producer, visual artist, and more. Alejandra Gersi's work as Arca defines the cutting edge of those fields. Her fluency in different media echoes how effortlessly her music borrowed from various genres while defying easy classification. The rumbling, rattling percussion that became a hallmark of her style had roots in hip-hop, noise, IDM, and Venezuelan party music. Gertz's approach was distinctive enough to be immediately recognizable even when she produced music by artists as prominent as Kanye West, Bjork, and Frank Ocean. Welcome to Global Health Global Beats on Soho Radio. My name is Carlos Rocha. On today's show, I'll be taking Nicolas' place in conducting the show. I was a guest a couple of missions ago. We spoke about decolonizing aid and international cooperation. This time, we're going to tackle a quite different topic as we are going to be discussing many uh, different and diverse matters related to health and access to health care for trans people with an international and comparative perspective. My role in this discussion is going to be secondary as I'm just going to guide you through the different beats, all composed and sung by trans people from around the world, that we will listen along the show. The real lead of today's show is an amazing trans activist and very dear friend of mine, also from Colombia. As I just said, she will be conducting the show. Her name is Juli Salamanca. She is a feminist, human rights defender, activist for the rights of trans people and of sexual workers. She is an expert in communication for social change. She's a woman who defends her bodily autonomy, the right of all forms of womanhood, and she works to build a feminism in which we can all fit. Hello, my dear Huli. It's an honor to have you with us discussing these topics. Thank you for your knowledge and time. Hello, Carlos. Thank you very much for this introduction. So as I said, Huli will be discussing different topics uh, with also two amazing trans activists and experts in diverse trans matters. We have the pleasure to introduce Alma Aguilar Betancourt. She's a trans woman and human rights defender from Avillayala, Colombia. She holds an MA in human rights and cultural diversity from the University of Essex and has experience working in diverse regional and international organizations, such as the Organization of American States and the International Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, Trans and Intersex Association. Alma has experience engaging with the universal system of human rights protection through her work at ILGA World and as a human rights defender in Avillayala, Colombia, advocating for the human rights of indigenous women with diverse and ancestral gender identities and expressions. She is currently the project officer for the Love Alliance at AIDS Funds, a project that seeks to advance the RHR of LGBTQI persons, sex workers, and people who use drugs in 10 countries across the different African regions. 
Hello, Alma. We're really glad and happy to have you with us today. Hi, Carlos. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Juli, also. And um, yes, I'm really grateful to be here discussing um, trans healthcare with two amazing other trans women and activists. Thank you for being here. It's an honor. And on this show, we also have the pleasure to be with Alejandra Ortiz, writer, researcher, and grad grassroots activist, a trans woman with a history of marginalization and violence. Her history includes sex work, use of drugs, having a refugee, and undocumented migrant experience, among other intersections, living in the Netherlands since 2015. Along organizations such as Papaya Queer and Trans Pride, Alejandra, Alejandra devotes her activism to the visibility of empowerment and marginalized communities. Hello, Alejandra. As with Alma, it is a pleasure and an honor, and thank you for accepting this invitation. Hello, Carlos. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very happy to be here to talk about um, a topic that is very close uh, to me, to our community, which is trans healthcare. Thank you, uh, Alejandra. So before we start, uh, as you can already see, we have different backgrounds, different stories of activism and migrations, which will bring to the fore many interesting transnational questions about the access to health and the different gender identities construction processes. Uh, without further ado, and before giving the floor to Juli, uh, we will uh, listen to a second song. The second song is a piece, is a is a piece of music which is, which is called "Drone Bomb," "Me" by Anoni. She is a transgender English-born sing singer-songwriter. In an interview with uh, Flavor Wire in November 2014, she stated, "My closest friends and family use feminine pronouns for me. I have not mandated the press to do one thing or another." In my personal life, I prefer she. I think words are important. To call a person by their chosen gender is to honor their spirit, their life and contribution. He is an invisible pronoun for me. It negates me. Now let's talk about the song itself. Anoni describes the song as a love song from the perspective of a girl in Afghanistan, a nine-year-old girl whose family has been killed by a drone bomb. She's kind of looking up at the sky and she's gotten herself to a place where she just wants to be killed by a drone, drone bomb too. Blow me from the mountain and into the sea. She croons over a major synth drop. Her voice and the production are both darkly seductive, implicating the listener as they trace the war all the way home to the body. Writing in the language of unrequited love with pleas like I want to be the apple of your eye and let me be the one that you choose tonight, Anoni turns the abstracted, faceless nature of drone warfare into something chillingly intimate. To start the discussion, this discussion by coming up with a definition of health and what and what does it mean for you as a trans person and a trans activist? Let, let's start with you, Alma. What do you think? Thank you, Juli. Um, well, actually, for my definition of what um, healthcare means as a trans woman and as a human rights defender. I would actually like to echo the way in which the inter-American system of human rights defines the human right to health, which is basically not only the absence of afflictions or diseases, but also a complete state of physical, mental, and social well-being 
that results from a lifestyle um, that enables people to achieve an overall balance. And this for trans people uh, does not only mean access to healthcare and gender affirming healthcare in particular, but also the removal of social and other barriers that prevent us from enjoying our lives to the fullest extent, basically. Is that clear um, for you, Julian? Yes, thank you, Alma. And for you, uh, Alejandra? Uh, what else can I add? I think the definition of Alma is uh, very much to the point. And I think something really important to say about uh, trans healthcare is that it, it should, um, this, this combination of, of factors that make um, a person healthy um, should not, general healthcare should not exclude trans healthcare. And, and vice versa, which something that is is something very common that that we hear when it comes to the trans community, is the uh, the the broken arm syndrome, which is many times with the trans people uh, go and try to to access general healthcare, uh, the physicians, the people in charge of providing the services, they uh, downplay any kind of problem that a trans person has in in in, in blaming on the trans identity. So I think it has to be holistic and it has to uh, include all aspects of, of, uh, of a person, not just the gender related aspects. Is that clear, uh, Juli? Yes, perfect. Um, we tend to relate health of trans people only and exclusively with treatments, procedures, an intervention related to the gender identity construction. I would like to invite you to tell me a little bit about healthcare, which is related to the gender identity construction, and about other components of healthcare that could be related to gender identity, but not necessarily. This seems to be important to discuss as a trans as a trans healthcare tends to be understood only under the parameters of the gender identity construction. Um, I think I can start if, if that's okay. Um, I think that uh, well, it's a very good question in the sense that we do indeed intend to relate um, health of trans people only. Um, and exclusively with treatments, procedures, and interventions that relate to our gender identity and the construction of our gender identity. Um, and um, I think that gender affirming healthcare as a whole, um, be it uh, uh, hormone replacement therapy, gender affirming surgeries, or whichever other procedures that uh, a trans person wants to undergo are of course extremely important and vital because um, they are you know, life-saving uh, medical components of um, healthcare and they do respond to the needs of um, most trans people or certain trans people, um, or at least those who decide to have them, of course. Um, but I also believe that mere access to gender-affirming healthcare or um, that this gender-affirming healthcare in itself is not enough when we talk about the human right to health of trans and gender diverse persons. Uh, because there are many other elements besides just mere availability and accessibility to these services that need to be taken into account to actually fulfill or realize the right uh, to health of trans and gender diverse persons. Um, 
for example, these procedures need to be entered into by uh, informed consent and not as a requirement to transition in a binary way or as a mean to achieve gender legal recognition, uh, which unfortunately still happens in a lot of places, because otherwise it can be regarded as ill treatment or torture um, as international human standards uh, dictate. Um, and for example, these services need to be also uh, of quality and tailored to each person's desired outcomes. Uh, but they also need to be culturally appropriate and sensitive for the person uh, that wants them. So this means, for instance, that they have to guarantee that a trans person who is, for example, indigenous, gets to understand and have a say in the transition path that is being set out to them. Um, and that these services uh, also need to respect uh, a bunch of other rights that we trans people have, right? So the right to privacy, for example, these services need to be confidential uh, insofar as we want them to be. And um, again, they just need to be of good quality. Um, but I would say also that um, nearly every other component of healthcare uh, and health in general needs to be regarded from a perspective that promotes the well-being of trans persons in our diversity. Um, and I think from well, from many different standards of human rights, um, such as those that uh, special rapporteurs from the United Nations and other mandate holders have uh, mentioned, um, include, for example, the um, mental health related services, right? So we trans people need to have access to basically every uh, component of healthcare, but with a perspective that uh, includes our uh, particular needs as trans people, right? So, uh, in this regard, for example, mental health services need to be sensitive and acceptable um, to our needs, um, and they have to move from pathologizing notions um, because, well, unfortunately, we do know that conversion therapies are still things that happen uh, when we tend to think of mental health, for example, or when we think um, tend to think of other um, social barriers that we trans people face and that actually hamper our access to um, actual um, good services that um, improve our lifestyles and our lives uh, as human beings. Um, but also, for example, uh, other services such as sexual and reproductive health services uh, need to start thinking about ways uh, to respond to our particular challenges and to our particular needs from an intersectional point of view. So not only to um, the general um, trans population, but also for trans youth, for example, for trans sex workers, for trans people living with HIV or with disabilities and so on. Um, so in general, I think that there needs to be a more critical and intersectional approach to these different um, health needs, um, or the way that uh, our health needs are regarded and the responses that uh, healthcare providers have been um, having to the procedures that we choose to have uh, or that we need also for uh, our transition path, basically. You won't, yeah. Yes, Alejandra. And, and, um... To complement what Alma has, has mentioned, which I think she covered uh, everything basically that I wanted to say, I think uh, consent, informed consent is the key, uh, and, and, but also that uh, um, 
doctors or, or, or psychologists or the person in charge of providing this uh, uh, gender-related or, or uh, healthcare-related services need to leave their uh, preconceived ideas and notions about what a trans person is and how a trans person should uh, look or be behind them. Um, and I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you just some examples uh, um, as to why informed consent and, and 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 really listening to what the person wants is important. Uh, for many years here in the Netherlands, trans people were obliged, forced to go to undergo sterilization if they wanted to be able to to um, to access uh, gender gender care. Uh, this this was done by law, and it only stopped in 2014. So basically, less than a decade ago, people were still forced to be um, to be um, sterilized in, in order to to transition. And and back then, and still in many parts of the world, uh, doctors and and physicians have a certain idea of what a trans person should look like and what the trajectory should be, but the same trajectory of transitioning of, of health-related uh, uh, issues is not the same for every person. And, and thus, just like with cis people, uh, you have all kinds of, of cis persons also happens with trans persons, so we cannot follow all one path. Um, a friend of mine went recently to the gender clinic here in Amsterdam and, and she was told because she is um, a, a bit overweight that she will not be able to access um, a surgery that she wanted. Now, her physician, her personal, her GP uh, told her that there is absolutely no problem with her being overweight to be able to have a surgery, but because the doctors at the gender clinic have an outdated idea that a trans person should have a certain, I don't know, weight, they refuse to, to provide uh, her with the services that she needed. And this is wrong. And you see this happening over and over in which uh, doctors, physicians tend to act more like gatekeepers instead of uh, service providers. And, and the same goes with persons that have HIV or do sex work. Many times when doctors and, and, and healthcare providers hear of these other intersections, they use them against uh, the person, uh, for the person not to be able to continue or get the service that he or she or they need. So I think it's very important that that dozen position of helping uh, trans people, one, don't assume things, uh, to ask questions, uh, appropriate questions uh, for a person to diagnose what he, she, they need, and uh, they leave any preconceived ideas uh, behind. So that that would be my take. You would come from different contexts in Latin America. Alma from Pereira in Colombia, Alejandra from Mexico, and. And you have worked and activist experience both Latin America and Europa. I would like, therefore, now to discuss a little bit 
which are the difference that you have noted in both contexts. If you want to start, Alejandra. Yes, yes, thank you. Oh, where should I begin? Uh, I'll start uh, speaking about my land, about Mexico. I come from a little village in the north of the country, and uh, you see the situation in Mexico. It is that uh, since uh, around 10 years ago, there is uh, a clinic that provides uh, hormones and checkups for the trans community. This clinic exists uh, in Mexico City and mostly serves only residents of Mexico City. And uh, from my point of view, the, the, the uh, health-related services in, in Mexico are... 10, 20 years behind than, than here in Europe. Cell medication is uh, the way most most people still transition. That's how I transition also, which can be dangerous because when you cell medicate, you are not aware of the dangers uh, the medication you're taking can do to your body in the in the short, in the long term. Then there's also the problem uh, in, in Latin America of... Um, the use of substances and um, polymers, I think they are called, to uh, to change and enhance your body, which, again, they are prohibited in, in the U.S., in Canada, in Europe, but they're still fairly common in, in Latin America in which uh, create uh, situations of, of danger. Now, uh, I said the situation in Latin America, at least in Mexico, is that it's mostly... Um, um, out of control in which uh, people, trans trans people, especially trans women, I suppose, uh, do self-medicate and in which the health services uh, for general healthcare uh, do still stigmatize the community in, in, in a way that it is uh, so terrible that uh, many people, most people, I assume, are still afraid or uh, to go to the doctor for a simple checkup. Now, in in the, in the Netherlands, in the Netherlands is different in the sense that um, here the health services are uh, more orderly, more regulated. But that doesn't mean it is uh, the best yet. Why? Uh, in the Netherlands, uh, to be able to transition, you have to uh, sign in to be at the gender clinic in Amsterdam. One gender clinic for the whole country, for a country of 70 million people, but it's still only one clinic. And what they do to this day is that um, they uh, see doctors and uh, basically still pathologize you because they put you in a system, in a waiting list of two, and more, two or more years to be able to diagnose you as a trans person when uh, now the uh, now informed consent is, is is the norm and should be adopted in the Netherlands but it hasn't been adopted yet so in the Netherlands it's better in the sense that it is uh, regulated but it's overly regulated and again I see a lot of gatekeeping from the doctors and in the case of uh, refugees trans refugees living in refugee camps in the Netherlands uh, since four years ago, trans refugees should be able to access hormones uh, by asking their, their, their GP for, for hormones. But what I 
I have seen, and this is my personal experience with the, the friends around me, is that many times doctors in the refugee centers provide hormones based on their own ideas of what a trans person should look like or what a trans person is. So some friends of mine, after two or three years in a refugee center, still haven't been able to get hormones. Uh, yeah, so it's better in a sense, but it's not ideal in, in the Netherlands and much less so for, for uh, sex workers and for refugees. Alma, can you talk about the situation, the difference about the situation in Colombia and in Amsterdam, please? Yes, of course. Uh, well, thank you, Aleja, for sharing um, your experiences and all of your knowledge, first of all. Um, well, I see many differences. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say uh, that one is better over the other, uh, particularly because um, for me, many of the challenges that we as um, trans people face in Latin America, um, not only to access healthcare, but of course, um, in relation to this also, um, these barriers come from um, the colonization processes, right, of Europe. So a lot of the times we see that um, in our continent, in our side of the world, we still have some um, criminalization of uh, trans identities uh, and in general of also LGBTI people. Um, and these are you know, very big barriers that in Colombia we do not have necessarily, but that make it really hard in the region for uh, trans people to have access to healthcare. Um, when it comes to Colombia, I have to say we are um, in this way of thinking uh, from a human rights um, standards perspective, advanced or more advanced in the sense that um, there's certain accessibility to um, gender affirming healthcare. However, it's still a very pathologizing process with a lot of barriers for people, um, for transgender and diverse persons. The processes in Colombia are still very binary, as Aleja was saying. Um, there are these preconceived uh, ideas of what uh, a transition should look like, and this is particularly the case in um, cities that are not necessarily as big as you know the capitals of uh, countries. So, for example, in Bogota, um, the situation might be a little better, but um, in countries in in um, cities like mine, there are still a lot of barriers and a lot of uh, pre conceived ideas of what um, trans people, and in particular trans women, should look like. Uh, but there's uh, absolutely nothing, no knowledge at all on um, trans non-binary bodies, for example, uh, which in itself, it's a, it's a huge uh, disadvantage for um, non-binary people who want to transition. Um, in Europe, we see that that has changed increasingly, but there are still, particularly for um, non-binary people, a lot of um, barriers and a lack of knowledge on um, the paths for transition that can be tailored to their own uh, needs. Um, so those two perspectives I think are very important, but there are very similarities. Uh, here in Amsterdam, for example, pathologization of trans identity still occurs um, the same way as it does in Colombia. Um, so we are first asked to undergo 
uh, psychiatrist, uh, a series of psychiatrist evaluations to get a certificate basically that states that we um, have um, a gender dysphoria disorder, uh, which actually has moved away a lot from recent developments in um, the international standards for um, trans healthcare. Um, so that's kind of the similarities that there still are. In Europe, particularly, one of the things that Aleha also mentioned and that I find um, very interesting when thinking about, you know, developments that in Latin America we need to strive for, but that also we need to learn from, um, is the monopolization of trans healthcare. So as Aleha was saying, there are very few centers in the countries that have um, good um, trans rights or, or good trans um, healthcare. And this in itself, it's a huge barrier because you are basically faced with uh, these huge waiting lists that actually put you and put us, many of us at risk of, um, for example, ending our lives, uh, of uh, developing, um, you know, actual mental um, disorders that can um, affect our lives, our livelihoods. Um, so those are like the main barriers that I can see. Uh, when it comes to, for example, funding um, or like access to these um, services from a um, public uh, or like state perspective, um, in Colombia, there are, it, it is supposed to happen. Like we have developed uh, a series of um, standards for uh, trans rights in which Ideally, we would need to have access to these rights, but in reality, there's still um, a lot of, a lack of legislation, first of all, and a lack of um, willingness from uh, healthcare providers to provide services for trans people. Um, and this also, for example, uh, has to do with uh, all the stigma, the discrimination and the violence that we face uh, in our society in Latin America. Uh, I wish I could say that the situation is different in Europe, but unfortunately it is not um, in the sense that there's still stigma here. There's still discrimi discrimination uh, that we face, maybe not in the same amounts as we do face in Latin America and maybe not as um, visible. But um, yes, there, I, I think that it's also important to deconstruct these ideas that Europe is better because uh, Europe is more accepting of whatever, uh, because we have to first recognize that if Latin America and other countries in the global South are uh, in bad situations uh, when it comes to the rights of LGBT people and trans people in particular, um, it is to a very important degree the fault of colonization, in particular colonization that happened from Europe. Um, because um, as I mentioned before, there are still a lot of colonial laws, but also uh, colonial beliefs um, that are the ones who are, you know, are in the roots of the stigma and, and discrimination and violence that we face. Uh, and yes, that's uh, what I have to say. Thank you, Alejandra and Alma, to share your experiences. And I think that uh, we need music in this moment. Carlos, please play the music. Thank you, Juli. Uh, but before I announce the the new the the next song, 
I would like to thank you very much to you, uh, you two for this really interesting introduction. I think we already tackled all the topics that we will uh, tackle further. So it's perfect because we have already on the table all the problem with uh, pathologization, the importance of informed consent, the importance of also intersectionality, which you're both our experts. So we will also uh, uh, talk a little bit further and deeper about this, um, about this um, in the next se sections. Also, the, this idea of physicians at, as, as um, gatekeepers and this, um, this situation that, if I understood correctly, repeats itself in Europe and in Latin America, this difference, difference between paper and reality, and this also misconception that we have that necessarily in Europe the situation is better, and this, that by having regulation, uh, it means that uh, stigmatization and violence is over, and it's not the case. So thank you very much. And um, our third piece of music... Uh, is by an artist called Ataru Nakamura. Her parents divorced when she was little and she was raised by her mother. Nakamura began studying music early in her life, teaching herself to play the piano at the age of 10 and beginning to write her own songs at 15. She mixes the traditional Japanese style of music called Enka with modern pop rock. And this is one of her Enka pieces of music. Hitori Bochino, Okuniko. 